Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to look at some of the European Union's top regulatory developments around data privacy, cybersecurity, and more for 2024. I'm your host, Bill Coffin, and this is The Ethicast. Twenty twenty three was a very busy year in the realm of cyber risk and compliance, with new laws passed around the world on the state, national, and international levels to further protect data privacy and bolster cybersecurity, including new reporting and disclosure requirements. Numerous efforts began to establish standards around the responsible development and implementation of artificial intelligence, and all throughout, enforcement agencies reminded everyone that they can and will levy large fines against those organizations that fail to live up to standards or act in good faith. The European Union has been at the forefront of these developments, upholding its long history of taking data privacy and cybersecurity very seriously on behalf of its citizens and establishing high watermarks for global ethics and compliance programs to meet or exceed. As we look to the year to come, the EU's regulatory pace is not expected to slow down, which leaves ethics and compliance officers with a pressing question, what's in store for 2024? With us today to share his insights is Alex Vanderwolk, partner and co-chair of Morrison Forster's Global Privacy and Data Security Practice. Based in Brussels, Alex advises global companies on data protection strategy and compliance, governing all aspects of information management. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bill. Pleasure to be here. By October 2024, EU member states will need to have applied into their own national laws the NIS2 directive, the EU-wide cybersecurity legislation that provides legal measures to boost the EU's overall level of cybersecurity. That is only 10 months away. So can you tell us what major challenges we can expect countries to struggle with on this? And most importantly, what companies can do on their end to ensure that their own cybersecurity efforts align with what the EU expects of them? Absolutely. And let me start by referring to the fact that this is the NIS2 directive, which means that there is an NIS1, um, which uh, dates back to 2016. Uh, it was um, an, or is a directive similar to the NIS2 framework, which means that it's European law, but it needs to be transposed into national law. Um, and until that time, there is no direct effect, if you will. Now, this one is uh, and has been implemented into national law, so we have some contours, but there are quite a few fundamental differences with NIS 2, uh, one of which is the scope of applicability. So you saw that NIS 1 was very much focused towards critical infrastructure. NIS 2 is designating a whole lot of other areas and sectors as you know, covered in scope of, uh, of the framework. Uh, to give an example, it's uh, banking, it's financial services, it's um, to a certain extent, uh, it's postal courier services, um, quite a few areas and sectors that weren't in scope for, of, uh, of NIS-1. Um, what you will see for the next 10 months or so to come is that member states will have to transpose NIS-2 into their national laws. And if there's anything that we've learned from NIS-1 is that not all member states are going to meet that, um, uh, you know, that, that deadline. Um, there are inevitably going to be member states that will miss the deadline. Uh, there will presumably also be member states that will be ahead of the deadline, but um, a lot can happen between now and then. And you know, we'll have to see what the implementation, implementing laws will look like. 
Another thing to look out for is that the implementing laws will give further nuance and contours towards companies that will be subject to this new framework. We know the sectors, those are defined by the European legislation, by the directive itself, but we don't know the thresholds. That Those will be set by the national implementing laws. And so, you know, what we saw, saw with this one again is that those thresholds may differ um, and, you know, same sector, same company may be subject in one member state, but not in another because of the difference in thresholds. So a lot will happen between now and October and presumably beyond uh, for us to know, you know, what this will look like and for companies to figure out whether or not they're going to be subject to this. You mentioned that not all countries are expected to make the deadline, and this is not unexpected, but do you have a sense of, are there any particular countries that really kind of stand out as widely expected to not make that deadline? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure if they're notorious offenders, <laughs> if you will, um, in the sense that, you know, there are countries that almost by default miss the deadline. It, it really d differs, I think. It differs towards uh, whether or not the national authorities are already set up um, it, it also depends on how much priority this gets on any member state's uh, political agenda. Uh, to give you an example, Germany, as one of the few, to, to my knowledge, um, has already drafted an implementing law, which got leaked uh, in 2023. So we know where Germany is heading towards, and I'm pretty confident that they will have something by the deadline, if not before. Uh, but difficult to say whether you know, all of the countries will make it, and, and if not, which countries will be those that won't. In terms of what companies can do to prepare, I mean, the thing with these cyber frameworks on a European level is that uh, they don't, they, they provide high level requirements in terms of the actual cybersecurity requirements. And so um, if you're anticipating to look towards these frameworks for the detailed cybersecurity requirements, um, you're going to end up disappointed because they won't contain them. They'll they'll be high level. They'll say things like you need to have an appropriate governance framework. Uh, you need to have a procedure to be able to respond to uh, data security incidents or or you know incidents covered by these respective frameworks. So the issue here, I think, is mostly to make sure that you have a you know procedure, a policy, uh, something in place that allows you to respond to vulnerabilities to uh, cybersecurity events and incidents. Um, I was on a panel with one of the European members of parliament uh, back in October, and um, he indicated that the penalty regime, just to give an example, the penalty regime under NIST 2 isn't so much there to penalize companies for you know, getting breached or being attacked. It's there to, to incentivize companies to have a framework and a procedure in the first place to make sure that you have something and you know to make sure that you revisit your your policy time to time make sure that it's still appropriate to uh, you know the, the types of security risks and cyber risks that you face so I think it's that where it's that area notably where companies uh, may want to have a look towards their preparation for NIST 2 in addition to of course assessing whether or not they're going to be subject to NIST 2 and then in addition, I think it's really a lot about making sure that you have the ability to make the appropriate notifications once they're required. A lot of companies in the EU, I think over the last couple of years have gotten used to the GDPR type breach notifications. Um, here, the thresholds under NIST 2 are gonna be different. Uh, the timelines are gonna be different and the authorities are gonna be different. So to the extent that companies have instant response plans in place, which would be a very 
um, you know, good recommendation to have. Um, it'll be good to revisit those and make sure that they accommodate the notification requirements that will come into play under NIST 2 and the Cyber Resilience Act, which we're no doubt going to be talking about in a moment. Speaking of the Cyber Resilience Act, as that gains further traction in 2024 as part of a global crackdown to cybercrime, what do you think will be some of the most you know, significant developments to this emerging security framework? And again, what is some of the heavy lifting that you imagine this might impose upon companies whose products and services will be placed on the EU market? Yeah, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, so, so we're talking today about NIST 2 and, and the CRA, the Cyber Resilience Act. Um, they're part of a more encompassing uh, cybersecurity framework. There's also DORA, uh, the Digital Operational Resilience uh, Act, which um, governs financial sector uh, first and foremost. But the whole intention with this framework is twofold. One is to make sure that the cybersecurity posture of European companies is up to par. Uh, and second is that these frameworks go hand in hand. Um, they are intended and drafted not to overlap too much. The reality is going to be that some companies are definitely going to face that kind of overlap. Just to give you an example, NIST-2 regulates the banking uh, sector and financial services, as does DORA. Um, and there are going to be overlaps between the Cyber Resilience Act and NIST-2 as well. But you know, they're, they're intended to exist uh, side by side. CRA, the Cyber Resilience Act, deals with digital products. Um, that are placed on the EU market. So if you're a manufacturer or a distributor or an importer of products that have digital components and that are connected one way or another to you know, a network, um, then you know, you're going to want to pay attention to the CRA and, and assess whether or not you're going to be subject to those provisions. The thing with the CRA is that um, like NIST2, it introduces a lot of, you know, what I would say common sense cybersecurity requirements, again, having a governance um, um, you know, policy in place, being able to respond to incidents, making notifications. The thing with CRA though, is that certain products are going to re be required to get a, um, a CE marking. They're, they're going to have to go through a conformity assessment. And depending on the criticality of those products, it's either a self-assessment or it has to be you know, done by an external third-party certified auditor. So um, it, it's, it's one of those things, again, if you're in the business of placing connected products on the EU market, then you're going to want to you know, keep an eye out for these kinds of things. The one nuance I will make is this regards product, products that are placed on the market. So we're talking about resale. If you're a manufacturer of products that you develop for your own use, but you don't make them available to you know, third parties, to, to customers, directly or indirectly, then uh, you're likely not going to be subject to CRA with regards to those kinds of products. Ethics doesn't just happen. You need to put in the time. So make sure to register for the 15th Annual Global Ethics Summit, a live and virtual event in Atlanta, Georgia, from April 22nd through the 24th. Save $200 by using the code ETHICAST at registration. To learn more, visit attendges.com. Can you talk about some of the landmark privacy cases that the European Court of Justice issued in 2023 and what some of the most closely anticipated decisions of 2024 might be? Yeah, well, we had a lot of cases uh, issued by the Court of European uh, uh, Justice in, in the EU. Um, 
we we saw a number of cases being issued uh, around the question of damages um, in a privacy context, uh, be it in a private litigation one-to-one or in a class action litigation uh, situation. Um, but there's the provision in GDPR that says if you're a data subject and your uh, data was the result of you know a violation of of, uh, of GDPR, um, you're you know, you may be entitled to, to damages. Now, especially in the class action context, that has spurred a lot of cases, um, a lot of you know claims being brought in European context. Um, and uh, many of those questions you know revolve around the question in which situations uh, individuals are entitled to you know compensation, to damages uh, compensation. And uh, there have been a few landmark cases throughout 2023 that have said a couple of things. First is the mere violation of GDPR in and of itself doesn't uh, award damage compensation. There has to be some form of actual damage sustained by the individual and the individual has to evidence those damages. So you can't just put up your finger and say, oh, I saw that such and such company you know, did not have a privacy notice published on his website. Can I you know, <laughs> collect? Um, you'll have to show that you were damaged actually damaged, which could be immaterial damages, but still actually damaged by that violation um, in order to uh, to claim compensation. So I think that's a that's a big um, decision. We're going to see decisions, you know, around that same question into 2024, more on a factual or nuanced level, such as what if it's a data breach and I was, you know, my data was obtained by a bad actor. Uh, in what circumstances would by would I be entitled to damages in those uh, in those cases? So that's one one thing to keep an eye out for. Uh, another, I think, very interesting uh, decision in 2023 was the Shufa case, which sets bound set boundaries around when processing of personal information qualifies as automated decision making. Uh, you may recall that GDPR provides that if processing is automated decision making, there's a whole lot of restrictions that come in place. Um, and basically, you can only do that on the basis of explicit consent. Um, and you know, there was a question: what circumstances you know would amount? What kind of processing amounts to automated decision making? In the Shufa case, it was held that even if you're a, a, a party that you know provides reports, profiling reports, but you don't take the actual decisions on individuals, but you provide those reports to another party, to a third party who who, who takes those decisions. You, in the first place, as company is providing those reports, can be engaging in automated decision making such that you are subject to that, you know, to those restrictions under GDPR. Um, and we're going to see more of those cases into 2024, no doubt, uh, that will set the contours around, uh, you know, GDPR and, and its provisions. What are some of the most interesting AI developments likely to emerge this year that ethics and compliance professionals should monitor? The EU's AI Act. Uh, was in preparation and development throughout 2023. Um, it went through the legislative process. We're pretty much almost there. Uh, we know that a uh, political agreement has been reached uh, about the contours of the AI Act, but we haven't seen its final um, publication yet. Um, it is anticipated anytime soon. It could be this week, could be next week, uh, but uh, you know, we, we do uh, anticipate to see it soon. Uh, there will be a transition period before it takes effect. However, um, I think the most important thing to note here is that, you know, not just the EU, but globally, people are minding what the EU is doing on the 
AI Act front. A lot of countries have already indicated that they are you know, intending to model their own AI laws uh, to the, the AI Act. Um, and it's the first of its kind, I think, where it sets a comprehensive framework around the use of AI and the requirements of users as well as producers uh, of AI. Uh, there will also be an extraterritorial effect that will stem from the AI Act. So, you know, even if you're not established in the EU, um, you may very well want to take note of uh, the EU's AI Act when it's here, especially if you're a producer in one way or another of, uh, of artificial intelligence. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. I learn something from you every time we get together and speak. So really appreciate you being on the show. And it's always a pleasure to hear from our friends at Morrison Forster. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Bill. To learn more about what 2024 holds in the area of cybersecurity, data privacy, AI, and more, please visit the Morrison Forster Privacy and Data Security page at mofo.com. That's M-O-F-O.com. And for a library of additional thought leadership on information governance, privacy, and cybersecurity, please visit the Ethisphere Resource Center at ethisphere.com slash resources. I'm Bill Coffin, and this has been the Ethicast. For more episodes, please visit the Ethisphere YouTube channel at youtube.com slash ethisphere. And if this is your first time enjoying the show, please make sure to like and subscribe either on YouTube or on our podcasting platforms at Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music. Thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, remember, strong ethics is good business.